Well, very good morning to each of you. It is a privilege to be here, and I wish grace and peace to your life today as you're gathered here with the group. I did enjoy the singing this morning. I thought it was very worshipful as we came and thinking about how we stand before the Lord and the things that he has to offer to us as we open our hearts to that. I don't know if you enjoy reading. I grew up enjoying reading, and I realized recently I am a sucker for a good story. Um, if I get a hold of a good book or a good story, it takes a while to lay it down, and I sometimes have to be careful when I start because I have other things I should be doing, so sometimes I just postpone those things because it might be a problem. But uh, the Bible is a story. Sometimes it isn't quite as emotional or uh, engaging because of the way it's written and so on, but, but it is a story. It goes from one end of history to the other end of history, shows us what comes beyond. But in that story, there's a couple of, of uh, important parts, important elements. One is the fact that this story that, that the Bible is uh, deals so much with the human story, human nature. So we look there and we see how humans react and think and the choices he makes, the struggles he encounters. And the reason that Scripture is engaging is because as we read it, we find our own story reflected back to us and we can relate because uh, what Scripture says, there's no temptation that we face that hasn't been common to man. So as you look in this Scripture, we, we see many of the same things reflected that other men have faced before us. So it helps us understand ourselves and our limitations. But the other important element in this whole story is God's side of it. God's nature, the way he thinks, the way he acts, and the way he uh, plans things and carries things out, and why he calls men to a higher standard. Now, by ourselves, we could read about or by themselves, man's part of the story and God's part of the story, both interesting. But the most fascinating part is when these two things come together and interact, and you see how one interacts with the other, and uh, God's nature interacts with man's, and that's when... Our story becomes bigger, it becomes more interesting, and, you know, when God is holy and man is rebellious, what, is, what does God do? When man is frail and God is powerful, how does God act then? Uh, when, when God is perfect and man is fallen, how does God respond to that? And when a man is lonely and depressed and fearful and frail and faithless, what will God do then? And... Uh, one of those stories is found in 1 Kings 17 through 19. And I'm not sure how to classify this little message this morning. It may not be for everyone. In fact, it probably won't be. It's not a doctrinal message. It's probably not even an instructional message. But uh, if, if life is going well for you, I'll just say this. If life is going well for you today and you're all courage and zeal, you might not really see the point in this, this message. If you... Uh, if you're ignoring God's voice and running away and doing your own thing, we might be better off studying Jonah's story than this story. But I can only assume that some of us here will probably find some direction, some comfort, some, some uh, help in relating to Elijah's story. And so you already know the title, I believe, A Drink, A Cake, and A Still Small Voice. And those elements definitely point to the story we find in 1 Kings 17 through 19, I'd like to focus mainly on the 19 part, but I'm just going to tell the first part without reading it because it's a long story. And so if you children get bored of some of the things I'll say, maybe you'll listen to this part of it at least because it is an interesting story, the story of Elijah and 1 Kings 17 through 19. 
So we'll take it by chapter here. In chapter 17, Elijah shows up on the scene. We've never seen him in the Bible before. And he shows up in chapter 17 before King Ahab. And he stood up before Ahab and said, there's, because of sin, there's going to be a drought and there's going to be judgment. And there's going to be a famine in the land until God says it can stop. And so after that, he had to sort of pay the consequences of being willing to stand up before the king and tell him that. God hid Elijah by a brook for a while until the brook dried up. That was when the ravens came twice a day and fed Elijah. And uh, there was water in the brook. But when the brook dried up, God sent him to a widow. And if I was sending somebody for, for sustenance and for a good life, I probably wouldn't send him to a widow that's going to starve to death next week. And so Elijah arrived, and this widow woman was gathering sticks to cook her last meal. It was the last food she had. And maybe Elijah thought God had made a mistake, but he didn't. Um, Elijah promised that if the widow would feed him, the, the flour wouldn't get all, the oil would continue until the famine ended. At the end of that chapter, you see him raising the widow's son to life. That's chapter 17, pretty much the summary of chapter 17. Then we get to 18. And in chapter 18 is the beginning of this showdown. This is now three and a half years later, about. Um, God told Elijah, it's time to go to King Ahab and bring this to a conclusion. And so by this time, Elijah was on Israel's most wanted list. He was, they were looking all over for Elijah. Ahab was correct in his assumption that since Elijah started this, Elijah had to finish it. And so they were looking for, for uh, Elijah. They went to other countries looking for Elijah. And they would go to another country and said, is Elijah hiding here? And they would say, no, will you please sign this sworn statement that he's not here? And so we, that's what they did. And then they took this back to the king and they looked for him. And finally, Elijah shows up. But it wasn't Ahab that was in charge. Elijah was in charge. And it wasn't Ahab that found Elijah. It was Elijah that found Ahab in that chapter. And so they set the stage. And they said, let's go to Mount Carmel. We'll figure this out there. And there's 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet of God. And in 1821, he proposes this test. Uh, he says... Elijah came to all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. And so he said, There's been two gods around here long enough. It's time to decide which one is a real one and just follow him with all your heart. There's 450 prophets of Baal. I'm the only prophet of God, Elijah said. And here's the test. There's going to be a power struggle between the one and the other. You build your altar, I'll build mine. You kill your bullock, I'll do mine, and, and you go first since you're the most. And the people said, that's a good idea. Let's see which God can actually do something around here. And so uh, the 450 prophets started first. In the morning, went through all the stages of frenzy, of worship, trying to get their God to respond that way and bring down fire to burn up the altar and the, the sacrifice. And Elijah let them go hours until lunchtime. And then at lunchtime, he started mocking the prophets. And he said, uh, and this is probably as good as for the, for the people, as good as much as for anything, but he said, maybe he's on a trip, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on a hunt, maybe he's talking to somebody. And that made them go frantic. They cut themselves, they cried aloud, they jumped on the altar all afternoon in the heat of the sun. And by four o'clock the afternoon, their reputation was ruined, they were exhausted, and they were finished. And so it was close to the time of the evening sacrifice. I'm not quite sure what time of the day that was. But Elijah stopped the noise. Elijah called the people. 
And I like the language he uses. He calls the people to come, come near. We're not going to be jumping around and yelling. You can come a little closer. And he, I can imagine him talking to the people as he works. And so he's building up the temple that, or the altar that was broken down, 12 stones, and maybe tell them this is the way we used to do it, one stone for each tribe. This is the way altars are built. And reminding of their own history, God's plan for worship. He built this altar. He dug a trench. He placed the wood on top, put the pieces of the animal on top of that. Then he did something very strange. He called for four barrels of water. Now, we read the King James Version and read barrels. We think of the 55-gallon drum. I don't think they would have had those sitting around, probably more like a pitcher or something they would carry. But it was a lot of water to come up with on short notice, and they poured it on top four times or several times. And 1 Kings 18, this is the most simple prayer you can imagine. After a whole day of frantic effort by the 450 prophets, this is what Elijah says in verse 36 of chapter 18. Notice the elements of his prayer. It came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. You notice the three things he prayed that God would do. First of all, will you please reveal yourself as God? Will you please affirm me as your servant that all I've done is done because you told me so? And the third one, would you please convince these people that you are God and would you please turn their hearts back to you again? And there was an immediate answer. The fire came down. It was so intense. It didn't only burn the wood and the altar, the, the offering, but it also burned. I can't imagine a fire so hot that it would burn stones and lick up water, but that's what happened. When it was finished, there was nothing left but a patch of ashes, and the people were astounded. But several things happened at the end of this chapter. First of all, the people worshipped God for the first time in years. They were convinced of the truth. They said, the Lord, he is God. The second thing that happened was a mass execution of 450 false prophets. This was an effort to stamp out idol worship in Israel that had cursed the land and brought on this, this famine. And the third thing was the drought ended, but it wasn't without intercession. It says Elijah went to the top of the mountain, and he sat there with his head between his knees. That's a pretty flexible movement, but his head between his knees praying. And I don't know what he prayed, but I can imagine what he was praying because of what happened next. But maybe he was praying, that, just reminding God that, you know, these people have come back. The reason for the famine is over. Would you please send rain? He sent his servant out to look seven times and finally saw a small cloud rising over the, the sea. So they went running back down to Jezreel, and what a rainstorm. An emphatic ending on three years of drought. I mean, we like spring rains, but can you imagine the beauty of a spring rain if it hadn't rained for three years? We would think it was the biggest miracle in our lifetime. Now, there's many lessons we could extract from this story. We could talk about the spiritual drought of an idolatrous life or the blessing that comes when idolatry ends. We could talk about the dangerous place of indecision. But what I'd like to do instead is consider the man Elijah at the center of this story, his success, his crisis, and his rescue from despair that happened in chapter 19. We don't really know a lot about Elijah before chapter 17. He shows up. 
Maybe he was just an unknown farmer like Micah was. I think it was Mike or Amos that said, I was no prophet, I was a herdsman. Um, he was called of God to do a, a high-profile task in a very difficult time. He announced the famine, he survived it for three years, and then brought this showdown and brought the people back to the Lord. That was his main calling. That was his, um, his, his big event. And for the span of these several years, his ministry was a success story. He did risky things. The burden of God weighed on him every day. He saw miracles happen. He wielded tremendous spiritual power in Israel during that time, all for the goal of bringing God's people back to him again so they would worship him like they should. And I'm guessing, like many of us probably would, the rest of his life he might have looked back at that time as the, the high point of his ministry, the high point of his life. I don't know. I'd like to take this little opportunity here to just say a few things about spiritual high points. Uh, ministry. I don't know what things you do, but I think in telling this story, we're looking at our own story and thinking of questions that pertain to our own life. I'd like to ask us this first this morning. Must we look back at the highlights of spiritual life and ministry, or are they happening now? Now, if, if we say that now is the best place now is the most effective time in all of my life. Well, then God bless you this morning. We need people like that. We need you here. But if you say there's been times when the spiritual fires burn hotter, when ministry went better and I seemed more effective, well, God bless you too. And I used to think that if, if I had to look behind me to see the highlights and I look at where life is happening right now and think, you know, this isn't like it used to be. I used to think, what's wrong with me now? What's going on that is like that? And we do need to be cautious not to ignore when devotion is fading and when complacency is growing. We can't overlook that. At the same time, there's a few observations that might help the perspective as we look at that. The first thing I'd like to say is that spiritual excellence is not so much a place as it is a pursuit. Uh, Paul did not camp on his mountaintops. He was continually casting them aside to go on to the next thing. He says that in Philippians 3.13. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And too often we mistake the mountaintop experiences for the, for the end goal, and they just aren't the end goal. It's just an experience in the moment. A uh, little story that came to my mind was something that happened right out here one day on a field day in the school. And back then we ran races for field day. And I think the track for the races went from about down by the swing set, around behind the school, and probably about right through here before the gym was here, to the right side of the church, up around the front of the church and back around. That was an eighth of a mile. And so a quarter mile race was two, two laps. A mile was eight laps. And... uh Somehow, my brother John got entered into a race with a few older guys. And I'm, I'm saying this out of my memories. They're fairly sharp, but, you know, I made me make mistakes, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. He got thrown into a race with a couple of older guys he probably shouldn't have been racing with. And they said, ready, set, go. And he set off thinking that the race was once around the track. The other guys knew it was twice around the track. And so he set off at a good clip. He was running for one lap takes it all. And he left the older guys behind because they were pacing themselves for two. 
And he made it all the way around the track, panting and getting tired and getting to the end, and he's way ahead. And he pants past the finish line and stops. And everybody says, no, no, one more, go again. And he realizes he's halfway. And so he keeps chugging along, and by that time his lead was great enough. I think he finished the race and won. I'm not quite sure, but I'm pretty sure. He says he doesn't remember that, but I'm pretty sure I remember it. But spiritual highlights are a bit like that. You get to a place, it's a great feeling, you're ahead, you're doing well, and then suddenly you realize, we're not done yet. We have a lot further to go. And uh, so we keep chugging on, as weary as we might be. So it's not a place as much as a pursuit. It's good to remember the high places. It's good to remember what God has done. But it's, it's also good to immediately remember that we're not finished. And there's usually a valley between me and the next mountaintop. It's almost always like that. You don't go from mountaintop to mountaintop. You go from mountaintop to mountaintop. That tends to be how our journey goes. Success tends toward complacency and self-assurance. Sometimes God allows it sparingly. Now, if we never succeeded, we might grow weary of trying. But if we always succeeded, we might forget our dependency on God and just coast. And there's so many stories, sad stories, of successful ministers that ended badly. It was a great music group until the lead singer ran off with a secretary. It was a great ministry until they were found embezzling funds. Or, uh, you know, stories like that we hear. Often, this sense that I'm on top, it's going well, tends to drown the humility and godly uh, pursuit of a person's life. God wants to bless us in our pursuit of him, but he wants to save us in his perils. I like to say this. Successful ministry is never a substitute for personal spiritual health. We need the ability to mentally separate these two things. That what God does for a person and through a person is never the same as God's per- uh, sorry a person's dependence upon and relationship with God himself. Now, these things are often closely linked. God will bless and use a person in a vessel that's cleansed, and he will probably set aside or withdraw from one that refuses to cooperate. But we must be able to think of those two things separately and never think that because God has blessed something I've done or worked through me in some way, that that is evidence that, uh, all is well. Seasons of ministry may come and go. They do not define or validate me. I don't think God ever intended us to look at what we do as our personal identity. I once met a man in Guatemala, came to visit, and trying to figure out who he was. He said, you ever hear of rigid plow rafters? That's me. And sort of equating the business with the man. That was sort of the... He was just trying to give me some point of reference, and that's okay. But uh, in a spiritual sense, we're, we're not really called to do that. Our identity is deeper. Our identity is what Christ has called us to be and what he has done for us, who we are in him. And there's a problem sometimes with this tendency that seasons of ministry tend to come and go. Uh, Esther was called for such a time as this. She stepped up. She did her task. And moved on. Uh, Elijah was called for such a time as First Kings 17 through 19. He stepped up and did it. And he did some things later. And perhaps we're like that. We're called to mentor someone or be a discerning voice or lead someone to the Lord or 
be a friend for a while, but after that, we almost feel like we're forgotten. Like the need was met, things moved on, now we're somewhere else, we're in a corner, in a back seat. And uh, does our identity suffer through that? Does our, does our relationship with the Lord suffer through that? I don't think it has to. We're still who we've always been. We're still a vessel, hopefully meet for the Master's use, willing and ready for that. But I'd like to say this yet. God is interested in our service to him, but he's much more interested in, in us as a person first. I do feel like that's true. I think it's true to say that what he can do in us and for us is as or more important than what he wants to do through us. Those times come and go, but the, the, the journey that we're on with him and the goal he has for us will always be the same. And so those things are true. So I don't know, in Elisha's story, which of these things may have been part of what happened next. I don't know. I'd like to read, if there's time here, the first four verses of 1 Kings 19 as we get into the rest of the story. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with a sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as, one of, as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Twenty-four hours, Elijah. Then there'll be 456, 51. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. So from there he goes on alone. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So Elijah went from Mount Carmel to Death Valley in a week, from the mountaintop to the lowest depths in just a few days. And it seemed to me that as long as there was purpose, and as long as there was vision, as long as there was a, a reason and a, a, a mission to accomplish, living under threat did not bother him. He walked right up to King Ahab, and had this showdown, and he was not bothered. But now the mission was over. Now the goal was reached. The highlight had passed, and this threat sent him running for his life. And what he felt was a personal blow. It was a, a challenge too large to meet. It was a crisis of faith, I think. It was a wave of doubt, and this instinctive impulse for self-preservation kicked in, and he just put as much distance between him and Jezebel as he could. And what is not done in faith is usually done in fear. And Elijah tried to put himself as far away as possible. I'd like to suggest that it doesn't take a death threat to make us want to run somewhere. It, and, and I'd also like to suggest that not all running is physical distance. It's not all just putting physical space between me and the problem. Um, sometimes there's hard things in our lives that make us want to pull back and just disengage. Sometimes there's relationships that go sour. We just want to wall off and not, not take part in. Maybe there's personal disappointments. We're looking for some ointment somewhere that's going to fix this problem. But these responses that we are so prone to doing, and we all tend to do it that way, are designed to avoid the issue, designed to let me not deal with it. Just go somewhere else for a while. And... Uh, we're all guilty of that. There are better responses. But instead of dwelling on what Elijah should have done, I'd like to just call our attention to what God did for Elijah this morning. That's, that's the focus here. 
what God did for Elijah in this, in this moment. We'll just keep reading the next couple of verses. In verse 5 of 1 Kings 19, And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. So here is a picture of human nature at its lowest. We found that in verse 4. Elijah is fearful. He is depressed. He is physically and emotionally squeezed out. I don't know if you've ever been in a place like this when you cringe to hear the phone ring. You just can't handle seeing another person. You hate every meeting, whether it's in church or a committee meeting. You'd rather curl up behind the couch and let the world go away. I think that's a little bit where Elijah was at this point. He's not thinking straight. He said, let me die out here. Well, Jezebel could have taken that for him a couple of days ago without all the trouble of running out here by himself. And so he lay down and went to sleep under the juniper tree. Now what happens next here that we've read is a picture of God's grace in action to a human that is fragile and frail and deep need. Now so often we do it differently than this. When we see somebody in this condition, maybe they're running, maybe they're fearful, maybe they're discouraged. Our response is sometimes to scold them a little bit. And you know you're living in fear here, you're not thinking straight. You're in a bad place. Sometimes we think somehow that we can change their hearts by pointing out their mistakes. All we have to do is show them where they're wrong and they're going to change their minds and do it differently. It doesn't usually work that way. Sometimes we cajole them, you know, snap out of it. Life's not that bad. Get over it. It's all in your head. Be happy. Somehow by pressuring their emotions, we can get them to change their attitude. Sometimes we ignore them. Sometimes we have the attitude, well, it's just sort of normal that people lay under a juniper bush with suicidal thoughts. God did none of those things. He didn't do anything at the moment like that. But what he did do was feed him. All he did was feed him. God knows as well as we do that running in fear is not right. But God also knows there are heart needs and there are symptoms. And For the moment, he just chose to ignore the symptoms and give him some nourishment so he could go on a little further. Uh, and what Elijah needed, I think, was a fresh glimpse of who God is, maybe to rediscover his foundations. And I think God looked down at Elijah lying under the juniper bush and said, you know, he's not even quite ready for that yet. And it's interesting to me that God did not solve Elijah's problem in this moment of depression. Rather, he just strengthened him to go the next leg of the journey to the place where his needs would be met and where he would find God to be close. Sometimes I wonder if he does that for us in our dark moments, in our moments of needs, and we think, God, you could just solve this in an instant, and all he wants us to do is be content with the nourishment for the next step. And we're heading there. We're going in the right direction, but we just need to be patient with it. But Elijah woke up. Somebody baked some bread. Somebody left him some water. The angel said, get up, eat. And uh, twice he had to do that. No scolding for the running, no cajoling about duty and courage. And what a meal. That was better than a double shot of espresso for energy. He got up in 40 days and 40 nights he traveled. But notice something in this juncture. 
there's a change in Elijah's running. Up to this point, he's running away from something. He's running away from Jezebel, running away from the threat. No goal, no direction, except to distance himself from the problem. That's all he's trying to do. But now notice, he's running towards something. It says he got up and went in the strength of that meat, 40 days and 40 nights, and the horror of the Mount of God. Now he's going toward a place, toward a juncture, toward a, toward a meeting. That's a question we should ask ourselves sometimes. If we're running, are we running in the right direction? It's sometimes okay to take some time, take some space, come apart for a while if we're heading toward Horeb, Sinai, the Mount of God. Because when you find that, I think there'll be fresh courage and there'll be answers. But Elijah got there. I guess Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. I guess there's a little debate on that, but not much. But he was on a quest to meet God and to ask questions and to figure things out and and I guess Sinai is the best place. That's where God met with Moses. That's where God met with Israel. That's where the burning bush happened over in that area. And he found a cave up there, and he went in there and waited. And finally God's word came. This is in chapter, oh, I guess we're still in 19. 19 about 9. He lodged there in that cave. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? This, this was a moment Elijah was waiting for, a chance to tell God exactly what he thought. And this is what he thought in verse 10. I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain the prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is his defense. This is his reason. This is grievance. That after throwing my life into serving the Lord, I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. God, how do you let this happen? And God does not rebuke, and God does not argue, and gives no rebuttal to what he just said. He just invites him to step out to the mouth of the cave and stand there and wait. And verse 11 says, Behold, the Lord passed by. Before we look at what the Lord passed by and did, can I ask this question? Of these evidences of God's presence, which of these does not represent an attribute of God? It says first that a great and strong wind came through that shook the mountain and broke the rocks. Is that an attribute of God? Is that a correct expression of God's person? I believe it is. It's consistent with God's power. His power was untaxed and it didn't cost him anything to break a few rocks up there. Elijah was there, waiting for God to speak to him and hear this crash and roar and wind and hurricane force. And although God could have done it, God did not speak to Elijah this way. Then there was an earthquake. Is an earthquake consistent with what God does? Sure it is. Uh, Hebrews says, I shook earth once. I'll shake it only one more time. God can shake things when he wants to. God can break things, destroy things at will, and although God could have, God did not speak to Elijah that way. And there was a fire, consuming fire, scorching inferno that passed by. Is that consistent with God's power, God's attribute? I believe it is. 
Our God is a consuming fire, it says in Hebrews. That's how God came the first time on that mountain. A consuming fire that scorched the rocks. And although God could have done it, he was not speaking to Elijah that way. And then, then this still small voice came. Immediately Elijah knew that God is speaking to me. And he put his mantle over his face and stood in the mouth of the cave and God asked the same question, Elijah, what are you doing here? Maybe that's the question that God wanted Elijah to go to all the way to Mount Horeb to hear and to ask himself, what are you doing here? Sometimes I wonder if God would ask, what are you doing here this morning? Would we know immediately what he's talking about or would we have no clue? Why are your emotions raw this morning? Or why are you frustrated or what are you running from or what is your fear here? What juniper bush are you under? What are you running after? Elijah repeats his answer. I was jealous. I was zealous. I'm the only one left to seek to take my life. And I'm not sure, but verse 13 in this chapter seems to be a turning point for him. From then on, it seems like maybe the doubts hadn't left. The circumstances certainly hadn't changed. But it seems like his attitude toward them and toward God had undergone a transformation, some shift there. I think there's a place of breaking in the human experience. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But when you feel tense, you feel burdened, and you feel uptight, and suddenly there's like this melting inside that you just know with nothing else has changed, but everything has changed just inside. And you just realize that uh, it's going to be okay. God's got this. He's here with me. I don't know what he's going to tell me to do next. And sometimes that happens when one understands what God could have done, but what he chose to do instead. So in the backdrop of the earthquakes and fires and, and wind up there, and then this still small voice speaking to the heart, and out of the supreme authority of the universe comes this whisper to the soul. I think that through that still small voice, God has healed more souls and won more contrition and brought about more turning than all that wind and fire and earthquake could ever accomplish. Because he reaches a heart through that, and that's the voice which he wants to speak to all of us. I think what Elijah received there was just a fresh view of God's power, God's tenderness, and God's presence. And that makes all the difference. We sometimes sing this song, And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. Whenever those two things come together, good things happen. That's why the story of the Bible is intricately entwining those two concepts the need of man and the provision of God. Whenever we come into a place where both are very apparent to us, that's when we find renewed hope and breaking and energy and courage for the next step. We won't dwell long on the conclusion of this passage, but Elijah is back on track. His soul and his spirit seem to be back in harmony with God. There's several things that happened yet in chapter 19 that bear mentioning. God, one is this, God, Elijah presented God with his argument. And God let it stand with no rebuke and no correction. 
He didn't say you were wrong, but he neither said, uh, here's the reason. God is God, and God did not give a reason, really. No rebuke, no correction. But God did point Elijah back to the next step of his ministry. Go back, anoint Haziel, king of Syria, anoint Jehu, king of Israel, and then anoint Elisha. He's going to be your protege. He's going to come along and be the next one. You go find him. And God said two more things that were surely an, uh, a, an, a reassurance to Elijah. He said, the men that you anoint will be effective in restoring godliness. And he said this, I've reserved 7,000 men in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. So you're not alone in the work, and you're not alone in the worship of God. And so he sent him back with that encouragement. And the Bible does not say that Elijah changed his mind, that his heart was altered in some way. It just simply gives evidence what he did next. He seemed to be at rest in God's will, and the channel of his spirit was open and cleansed and ready to go and do the next thing. And he left Mount Sinai and turned to retrace his steps, 40 days and 40 nights, all the way back to do the next thing, to a life of service, a life of usefulness, to God and his people. We've not told Elijah's story this morning for the sake of storytelling. And what we've taken from it may not really speak to you at all. I, maybe there's some here that we feel like that probably didn't apply to me. Maybe someday it will. Um, but it might be our story. It might be something we can relate to. It might reflect something of our own life. But I wanted to tell it because it, it provides a place for important questions. It provides a place for God to minister to us in the way he did to Elijah. Um, have, have we seen our place in his kingdom and his service properly? Has our service to him become our identity, or has it remained just an offering we give to him? Has it replaced in some way our personal spiritual pursuit of Christ? Are we running this morning? And if we're running, or we're running away from something, or are we running towards something? There's a big difference in which of the two we're after. I think there's still a horror. There's still a meeting place where a still small voice may be heard, where a will may break, where trust can return, when surrender can happen. Have we found what it's like to find a place of surrender and peace even if circumstances haven't changed? I think that's what Elijah found up there on the mountain. Even though Israel was still Israel, Jezebel was still Jezebel, he turned around and went back. Something had happened to him. Our human nature pretty much guarantees us a path in which we will be found to be frail, we'll be found to be weak, and that will be amply revealed in our course of life. But I believe God's nature makes it abundantly clear that his kindness and grace is the best companion that human frailty will ever find. And nourishment for the next phase of the journey and a presence that speaks to the deepest recess of the heart, strength for weakness, healing for pain, courage for fear, peace for storm. May we learn to know God the way Elijah did when he found that cake, that drink, that still small voice that turned his heart in the right direction. God bless you this morning.